Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, where hunters new and old come to learn and find inspiration from stories of hunts gone by. Everyone is welcome to enjoy the outdoor way of life, and there is no better time to start than right now. So let's head into the great outdoors with your host, Dylan Ray. All right, guys, welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101. We are still in our trad series, and we are learning all about recurves. And I am joined by a new friend of mine, somebody I can tell that uh, I could certainly glean some knowledge from, Mr. Tom Clum. Tom, how are you, man? Good, Dylan. How are you, buddy? Man, I am absolutely wonderful. I am sitting here, uh, just got the kids in bed, and I'm sitting here enjoying a nice hot cup of coffee and going to talk some bow hunting. So you can't be much better than that. No, that's kind of like what we like to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is uh, that's what it's all about, my friend. So, um, I I recently I was talking with my buddy um, Chris Perino about mm-hmm. different different shooting styles and different aiming yeah. methods, and uh, I was like, man, I need a, I need an expert, and uh, and he said, well, you'll have to call my friend Tom, and so I uh, he gave me your phone number, I reached out to you, and uh, and and like I said, you quickly became one of those people. I'm like, yeah, this guy is the real deal. So uh, cool, thank you. I uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, man. Give us a quick introduction to yourself, um, everything you do there at Rocky Mountain Specialty Gear. Um, and just kind of how you got started, man. All right, man. That's that could be a long story. I'll try to make short. Hey, we got. I got nothing but time. I started Rocky Mountain Special Gear 25 years ago, with really no intention of being in traditional archery. I was renting a building for my appraisal business that had a bunch of extra room, and I was buying traditional stuff from a little hole in the wall called Bob's Archery. Bob Taylor had a cool little shop and an old gas station with a whole bunch of bows. Anyway, I started a side business. I didn't want to compete with Bob, but I did like high-end wool clothing, like king of the mountain clothes and high-end optics. A good little side business to my appraisal business since I had this room. But I had my traditional archer stuff lying around and guys would come in. I'd kind of start a little knife shop too in the same little hole-in-the-wall building we had. And uh, guys come in and say, oh, I see you got a uh, hundred feathers there. Can I buy some of those? I said, well, sure. Can you order me this or that? Well, yeah, sure. Hey, I got this bow. You want to just hang it on your wall for on consignment? Well, sure. <laughs> That's how Rocky Mountain Special Gear started is in a traditional archery way. Complete accident. And uh, over the years, it morphed completely into a traditional archery specialist and end up being in a little strip mall in a 2,500 square foot building for 17 years as we built that business. And then it grew to the point where I could get a loan and we were busting at the seams and I rented uh, a place. I wanted to put an archery range in there and I found some retail warehouse stuff on a busy street in my neighborhood and, oh man, hung my butt out at six years old and signed a new lease. And uh, 
that was six and a half years ago and <clears throat> built a what i want to do is an all-inclusive shop so we've got a really good cutlery store knife shop we sell hunting supplies and gear like horn hunter packs mystery ranch packs kafaro packs scarpa boots sitka clothing kind of swarovski and other optics um kind of different or better than you could get you know in the normal stores it's kind of retail presence like that um added a guy to run a compound section on the other side of the shop and because i'm telling you retail for traditional archery isn't that hot because it's mostly done mail order so your margins are low you and so to support a retail store, I added a compound section. And now we pretty much got a well-rounded thing. I do the feet of target stuff, bare bow stuff. We've got a whole primitive section. I've got an extensive selection of longbows and recurves, like normal trad stuff. And on the other side, they do a heck of a job with compound bows and the high-tech stuff. And we've got uh, two archery ranges, one with about 28 lanes and one with about 12 lanes. The 12 laners behind the compound shop and before covid that was starting to get busy but we've had to go to half occupancy on that <clears throat> so we can't do leagues now but it's another story it's turned into a pretty good um, business overall we do a ton of mail order i should say e-commerce my younger uh, employees and my sons correct that all the time i still call it mail order <laughs> you know so we've got a website it's rmsgear.com um and it's pretty much an all-inclusive archery shop with a with a huge specialty in traditional bows because we have between 400 and 600 traditional bows in that shop at any given time to do a consignment business with custom boyers and with people from all over the country that don't want to hassle selling their own bows so they send them to us and we sell them on consignment and they get scan tagged when they get sold it scans through the system and that next saturday a check is cut for 75 percent of the sales price and that's how we do our consignment business and that's been a strong suit so took years and years to build and build the trust throughout the country and actually we get bows from all over the place all over the world now and send bows all over the world now so that's been a, a good model for us too so a quick snack snapshot that's kind of where we're at right now that's awesome man i i I appreciate anybody that specializes in what they do. Um, and, you know, not just trying to be the run of the mill and, and, and really exceeding in something. And so uh, I think that's kind of why I was drawn to you and kind of drawn to the way that you talk about traditional archery and, and, and wanting to perfect your art. And so um, I appreciate that about you. I appreciate that about your store. And, uh, and, and man, I was recently, I told you I was coming to Boulder last week and, uh, your store is there in Boulder, correct? No, it's in Wheat Ridge, actually. So you were only 20 minutes, 30 minutes away. Okay. Well, I didn't make it all the way to Boulder. Um, bad weather came in. And oh, did you hit that big storm? Yeah. So we were in Colorado Springs and uh, supposed to come to Boulder and do some filming uh, for Pope and Young. And just couldn't get there. And uh, I had already told my wife, I'm like, listen, I, I met this guy and he has a shop and, and I want to go there. And she's like, okay, that's fine, you know. Uh, but I didn't make it to Boulder. So I missed gotcha. out on it, but I was anxious to come in and and, uh, and meet you and uh, and see the store and, and everything. But before we dive in, let me give a quick thank you to my friends over at Schnee's. I don't know if you carry Schnee's, uh, but if you don't, you need to, um, because okay. they are the <laughs> finest boots on planet Earth, in my opinion. Um, 
I, I just I've fallen in love with them. I, I I used to be the kind of guy that would run into Cabela's and and you know buy a pair of of boots that were on sale and just finds one that fits and and go out into the woods. And I had no idea what comfortable boots and quality boots felt like until I got my first pair of Schnees. And uh, now I will say this though, I didn't. You know, I wasn't the kind of guy that had, you know, 10 pairs of quality boots laid out and, and did testing on them. But I I will say that I went from a non-quality boot to a good pair of, of Italian-made boots, and they blew my mind. I You know, I, it, I didn't even realize how used I was to hot spots and blisters and sore feet. <laughs> um, so go check out Schnee's. Um, they are in uh, beautiful Bozeman, Montana, and they make some of the finest boots ever. So, uh Tom, we are going to talk about we're going to talk about different aiming and shooting methods. So okay. if you if you haven't listened, if this is your first uh, episode in the trad series that we're doing, uh, we've broken down everything from selecting a bow uh, with Jim Willems to setting up your bow with Fred Eichler to arrow setups with with Aaron Schneider and uh, and shot execution with uh well shot execution will be next week uh with harvebers but tom we're going to talk about different aiming methods and um for somebody who's who's new to traditional archery i had no idea how complex this could get you know i had no idea uh i thought it was just aim and shoot and uh and i quickly <coughs> realized I suck at aiming and shooting. Um, so I had to explore different methods, different ways, different. Um, I work for Pope and Young. That's my job. And so these guys are, are super traditional, and they're like, well, if you don't shoot instinctive, don't shoot. And I'm just like, well, I suck at it, you know? So uh, I'm going to try something different. Um, and, and we'll dive into kind of what I've adapted. But walk me through... Um, the different shooting methods or aiming methods there are, um, and then we'll kind of go into what you think is effective for what situations. Okay. So when I got into this in the mid-'80s as, as a shooter into traditional archery, um, I come from that generation that was all what you just described the first, aim and shoot. It's instinctive shooting, not even not only instinctive aiming, but instinctive shooting. It was this free-flowing method, and you're drawing the bow as you raise, you hit anchor, and you're burning a hole in the target, and bam, it goes, right? And so I learned that way, and there are, there, there are places for that shot, but that shot is not real conducive to being able to produce it every time. And we'll go into the subject of instinctive aiming in a minute, but I will tell you that I teach a style that's significantly different from that. Not to say that there isn't a place for that shot in archery, but there are certain shortfalls to that style in the long run that I think are not so hot. And I can talk about that more specifically in a minute, um, I teach a shooting style that you shoot out of an anchor. It always made common sense to me that if you anchor and put a get aim on a target and then finish that shot in an appropriate manner without influencing the bow, and it was more than a snapshot, you could be more more accurate. And I was right, but I just couldn't do it in the old days. Um, I came through an education, kind of an extensive education archery through USA Archery. And so, I teach now like what the guys well, just before my generation did. Um, peoples in the 50s and 60s generally learned how to shoot well from target archery. 
And then they they did target archery to learn to be good hunters and to learn to be able to shoot well as a hunter. So I probably kind of bring us back towards that as far as shooting a recurve. And a lot of aiming styles in the old days involved using the arrow. But when I came up and started this in the mid 80s, if you were kind of using the arrow, you were kind of cheating. <laughs> you needed to be an instinctive aimer, an instinctive shooter, because that was the simplicity that the bows were intended for. Well, I will tell you that instinctive aiming is an aiming method, and it is real, and it can be exceptionally accurate at unknown distances and varying distances. But it is an ability that doesn't come naturally to us all. It did to me, and it's something that I can't take credit for or brag about because it's like being tall. You're, you hit the, the lottery. I can look at a target. I can get into holding and see a sight picture and be looking at a spot and hit that spot at an unknown range. It's kind of like the PFM, pure freaking magic thing. But my mind sees spatial relationships and trajectory paths subconsciously. It's nothing I have to, you know, that I, I think about. It does just happen. And there's all kinds of analogies like throwing a ball and all that stuff. But, you know, we all can't stand at a free throw line and shoot, uh, shoot the basket and hit it high percentage of the time. Now I hit the lottery. I didn't, I didn't hit the lottery for tall and good looking, but I can instinctively aim. But just like generations before us, people who can't do that need to have an aiming method that's effective. And so we use the arrow. The arrow can be kind of a single pin sight sitting out there. So we learn to do what is called gap shooting. At short ranges, if you think about an anchor point, it's going to be the anchor point is going to be below the level of your eye. So if you're shooting a, a target that's just straight ahead of you, right on the line of your eyes, and you put the arrow tip on that bullseye, you've got this low anchor below the level of your eyes at the knock end. What's well, pitching the arrow upward? So if you put that arrow on the, on the bullseye at moderate range before the arrow starts at a range where the arrow is not hit its crescendo and is on the descent, you're going to shoot over that target. So to hit that bullseye, we have to put the point of the arrow below that bullseye to a certain extent. Once you find how far low you have to put the arrow tip to hit the bullseye, you have found your gap at that range. So that method of shooting is called gap shooting. And within gap shooting, there's a couple even different ways that people do that. Some people will find their gap and look at the spot that their tip is pointing at. That's more of what we call a point of aim method. I shoot. I can't stand that kind of sh shooting because I don't want to look off of what I want to hit. I developed a gap. If I'm going to use a gap method of aiming, I put that arrow point below and it establishes the height of my trajectory path that I need because I've already pre-established how far below I have to put the point to hit the bullseye. And then I just look at the bullseye. And what a lot of fellows don't know is that your subconscious will maintain that gap. As you look at the bullseye, you're also seeing a sight picture. It's like looking at a television screen. So you're looking at the whole picture out there with your arm, the arrows underneath the target, and you're looking at the bullseye. If you just look at that, that will stay there while you make a mental transition into tension to a follow-through or to finish your shot properly. Many of us, and most, I shouldn't say many, I should say most of us in traditional archery and many, if not most, and even shooting compounds get all tied up in aiming. The old advice of burning a hole in the target, and this is, has right to do with aiming, so this is on subject. We get to burn the hole in the target, and that's where our conscious control goes. 
And then what happens is the release of the arrow gets linked to the aim. So that old school of burning a hole in the target stuff can be detrimental because when we're first learning, well, let me back up a little bit. Let me regress. When we're first learning, you're you're learning a shot in steps. You know, you set your hook and then your grip and you go through these steps and you draw in an anchor and then you aim and then you release. But the steps of the archery shot become quite imprinted in your brain and become a subconscious activity. And sooner or later, you get to the point where it's just anchor and then aim and then release. And pretty soon the anchor just becomes natural. And pretty soon it's just aim, release. But what happens to us, our minds work the same way, our minds develop efficiency. That turns into aim, release, and all of a sudden it's aim, release. All of a sudden it's aim, release. And all of a sudden the first hint of aim causes release because the brain knows its job. When it sees aim, it releases. And the only problem is that shortening process gets to the point where you're pulling the string back to your face. You don't even make it to an anchor. Your mind sees aim and the release happens subconsciously because the brain knows its job. When it sees aim, it releases. There's your classic, most typical form of target panic right there. But what we teach comes right out of target archery. We develop an anchor, we develop an aim, but what guys don't know is that aim is not a fleeting moment that you have to capture right there. Like, there's the aim, you gotta shoot, you know, or there's the perfect aim and shoot. Now, that aim, by simply looking at it, will stay there without other control for three full seconds. They've studied at the Olympic Training Center. If you talk to high-end rifle shooters, the, the whole science behind this says the same thing. Olympic Training Center, they put eye monitors on their, their resident athletes. And they found that once the aim is placed and the, and the archer transitions into a control finish of the shot, that their eyes would stay on the target, even though they're not trying to control the aim for three full seconds on average. The range between residents, resident athletes was 2.7 to 3.2 seconds, overall average of three seconds. That's way enough time to finish a shot properly. So let's go back to a gap method or any of the other methods I'm going to talk about. You place a good aim, consciously put a good aim on the target. Yeah, baby, right there. And then you make a mental transition into increasing tension on the string aimed at a follow-through. Now, that's more the style of archery I teach. And really, if you have that separation between the aim and the conclusion of your shot and you know, mentally make that transition every time and keep those jobs as separate jobs, you'll keep yourself away from target panic. Once that connection is made between the aim and the release, it's exceedingly hard to break that link. And then that's where some serious coaching comes in and some other tools that we might use, like uh, linking the release to something other than the aim, like a clicker. Because if you've got a clicker on a bow, you know there's a whole other job to do about after aiming. You have to keep pulling on the string until the thing clicks and then the release happens. Well, it takes the brain two to five shots to learn its job there. Release when it hears the click. So you make the aim, keep pulling, keep pulling, click, boom. And the release turns into a subconscious release again, but linked to the click. We've developed something called a grip trigger. We put a little deformable piece of stainless steel between a sandwich and this nice little thing you put in the grip. You develop the aim, and as you're increasing string pressure, you're increasing pressure in the grip, and it deforms this little thing that creates a little click in your hand or a little pop in your hand you feel. Here again, it takes two to five shots for your brain to link a release to that. So we develop an aim, whatever aiming method we use, and then it always involves increasing string tension to a follow-through. 
the release. We do want to be subconscious, but we don't want to be linked to the aim. So let's talk about it. This is, has right to do with aiming methods, and that's a piece of advice at a high-level coaching that not a lot, unfortunately, a lot of guys are into podcasts and this kind of information, but many, many have not heard. But that's something that we can help guys with a lot. We do more instructing at my class and at my shop than anything. So let's go back to that gap. We established the gap. Yeah, baby, right there. That's going to pitch right into the bullseye. Here we go. And we start adding string tension. If we're using a clicker, we keep the tension going. Click, boom, release happens. We don't have a clicker or any other, you know, triggered release going on. We put that, find that gap. Yep, right there. Look at the bullseye. Forget about the arrow. Just hold still right there. Start increasing string tension. Boom, to follow through. There's not a now moment. There's never a now moment attached to that aim. That's the way to shoot really well with any aiming method. So, talk about gap. And we talk about point of aim. And that it, it, after your point on range is, so if you think about it, you back up a little bit. Now we may have to aim a little higher because now we're going to deal with that arrow coming up and then down, right? So as, as you're going back, there's the point where you have to aim higher. And then your gap closes down arrows much closer to the bullseye you back up a little bit arrow gets a little closer because we have an upward trajectory path and a downward so you have to make up for that with a higher aim and then you back up to a certain distance you'll hit your point on range finally the range at which you can put the point on the bullseye and hit the bullseye because that trajectory path goes up and then down so that point on we're launching there upward because we have that lower anchor point than the level of our eyes so there it goes up and down that's our point on range everything after that's a hold over all right. In every case, you're simply developing aim. You're simply looking at the bullseye after aim has been developed to make a mental transition into concluding your shot properly. That's what higher level archery is all about. Now, you and me talked a little earlier when we talked about the fact that you use what's called a fixed crawl. That's a very common uh, aiming method that I would say was made most notable for my friends at the push archery, Matt Zernzak and Tim Neville. And that is a string walk, but it's a string walk where you pick your point on range. So if you're at 20 yards, say, that's definitely on the upward track. That arrow's not diving yet, and you're going to have a gap there, right? So this is a method you use with three under, obviously. So we have to change the pitch of the arrow to a point. So we're going to change the pitch of the arrow to where it comes way up towards our eye, and it's pitched right at the target when you put your point on, put your point on the bullseye. So you find out where on the string you have to go below the knock, and you go to your regular anchor point. Now think of that, that arrow is going to be sitting a quarter inch to an inch above your, your top finger now. So in your normal anchor point, we've changed the pitch of the arrow because it's sitting above now your normal anchor. It's much closer to the level of your eye. So you just experiment how far down the string you put your hook, your fingers, to create the pitch of the arrow that creates a range at which you can put the point right on the bullseye and hit the bullseye. That's called a fixed crawl. We're picking our point on range. So if a guy's a tree stand hunter and all of his, his normal uh, trails he's hunting, you get that average 15 to 20 yard shot, he can pick it. 15-yard crawl and put the point right in the middle of the chest or you can pick a 20-yard crawl. And if he gets that 15-yard shot, well, gosh, he just holds a little bit lower. 
If he gets a 25-yard shot, maybe he's holding the bottom of the chest at 15, 20, puts that thing right in the middle of the chest, 25, maybe he's top of the bat. That's something with practice tells that guy. Now, super great, super great aiming method for that venue. Or a target archer who's shooting at 18 meters or 20 yards. He might develop a fixed crawl where he can lollipop or cover the bullseye with air every time and then finish his shot. Now, I... And I don't know if a lot of people do this, but I know for uh-huh. me, when I was experimenting with the fixed crawl, mm-hmm. I don't like my arrow being on the point. Uh, like I, I don't want my point being over Covering the up target. what you're looking at. Correct. I'm the same way. Because like exactly like you said, I want to look at my target. I want to right. look at the heart of that deer and punch it out. Um, right. so, so I did my fixed crawl. My point on is at 24 yards. That way mm-hmm. at 20 yards, I hold an arrow width underneath and I'm on the money. There you go. Bingo. But I also, Super accurate. And I don't know, I don't know if, if uh, you know, I don't, maybe you can speak more to this, but what I do too is is more of like an instinctive crawl. Um, uh-huh. So so I, I still don't range fine and say, okay, I'm at 20 yards. I, I need to hold, you know, however far under. But so, so I, I still shoot instinctively, but... Now my arrow is always my point is always on the target, you know. Before I I just shot three under, your arrow your point might be two feet under the target if you're shooting at ten yards, and yep. I just could never get comfortable with that. You know, I could never I could never I could never wrap my mind around I'm holding two feet under this deer to hit it, uh, right. or, or my my right. point. So so basically all I did was fix crawl down to the point where. Okay, if I shoot at 15 yards, then my point is still on the deer. And if I shoot at 30 yards, my point is still on the deer. So I can I can see where I want to hit, and I in my peripherals, I can still see the point. Does that make sense at right. all? It absolutely does. So you been talking earlier, instinctive, you just never could develop any consistency with instinctive aiming, right? You know, but but what what's crazy is you mentioned shooting a free throw. I grew up a basketball player. That's what I did my whole life. Um, yeah. And... and you know, I don't want to say I did it well, but you know, I, I found a You're fair bit at. of success at it, uh-huh. and, and and I was a shooter. I mean, I'm five eight and white. I couldn't do anything else. That's all I was to do. Um, so so that in my mind, I'm like, this makes perfect sense. You know, if you're shooting uh-huh. a basketball, you don't say, okay, I'm at the three point line. I hold. You know, <laughs> you just shoot. Um, yep. And so I'm like, this makes perfect sense. But I just and, and you know, Tom, maybe it's because I am anal retentive and I want to hit a dime when I should be aiming at a salad plate. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, and in a recent conversation with well, one of my friends, uh, I shouldn't say friends, one of my acquaintances, and I'm not going to say a name because he's, he's wildly known in the, in the industry, but mm-hmm. I said, I'm trying a recurve and he said, well, I enjoy accuracy. So I shoot a compound and, and that kind of bugged me, man. Um, mm-hmm. because I was like, well, so you can shoot an Advil and I can shoot a ping pong ball. What's what's the real difference, you know? Yeah. Um But but that that was my mindset and I think that's why I had to switch it up because it wasn't enough for me to hit, you know, the paper plate. I want to hit the bullseye. Um, well let me tell you, there's no doubt about it. We can look at competition. And if you've got a good gap shooter or somebody uses their arrow. That is ab- at known ranges. That is absolutely a more accurate way to shoot. You, it's can't be argued. Now, so if you like in the old days, we'd go to certain 3D tournaments and we'd be on a flat ground 3D range, 
And there was this one fella, he was a great gap shooter, straight up and down, tired archery stance. Um, and he would hold that, he'd be at holding for two, three seconds and bam. That guy, he was un, absolutely unbeatable on that range where he could see range easily. And I wasn't one of the guys that could compete with him. But I've got a buddy that works at our shop, been shooting, a, he's 50, over 50 years old and been shooting a bow since he was three, a traditional bow only, part of the expertise we have at the shop named Tracy. But anyway, Tracy was one of those really outstanding instinctive aimers. His dad was that older generation before, you know, he's older than me. And so he learned from target archery. And so Tracy learned to anchor in there, instinctive aimer, finish a shot. And just an outstanding shot. So but so if we went to a flat course with this other fellow named Jimmy, could really estimate range well, Tracy, there's a good chance Jimmy was going to win that tournament. But if we went to a mountain course and we're shooting across gullies up and down hills and side hills, a little tougher to estimate a range. We're shooting over a hump between yourself and the target. Well, Tracy clean his clock because Jimmy would have a lot of high and low misses because it was darn difficult to to estimate range and get his gaps right. So, you know, but on a flat course where range is easily estimated, well, Tracy shot an 8 and Jimmy chewed a 10. Tracy shot a 10 Jimmy chewed a 12. Kind of one of those kind of deals, right? So there's gives and takes to any method of shooting or aiming that you do. Um we talk about FOC or arrow builds. There's gives and takes to everything you want to do. So aiming methods, the same darn way. In a certain situation where your shots are commonly at a shorter, moderate range and, and they're pretty reliable within a certain range, that fixed crawl is super hard to beat. Um, back to your point earlier, um, you had a heck of a time seeing that two-foot gap, right? Well, I'm still a split-finger shooter, mostly instinctive aimer. I can gap shoot if I want to now. I, at my pulling on range, which is like, depending on the bow, I'm shooting 40 to 45 yards. If I know it's 40, 45 yards, I will use that point because it's just undeniably accurate. If if uh, on a certain bow, if, it, if I know it's 40, 41 yards, I'm going to put the point right in the middle, and I'm going to hit pretty much in the middle. All i got to do is finish that shot correctly. If it's 35 yards and I know it's 35 yards, I'm going to probably look at that point at the bottom of the chest and finish my shot correctly. It's going to dump right in there. If it's 45, I'm going to hold top of its back and it's going to dump right in there. Why wouldn't I use that tool? Why in the heck wouldn't I use that if I had a known range? If I don't know the range, I'm going to look at the spot and I'm going to finish my spot shot. And I'm going to be pretty, pretty good when I'm well-practiced. The, the disadvantage in that kind of instinctive aiming is perishable. You got to shoot a lot and you got to shoot a lot at different distances. So you got to refresh that in your mind. Your mind has to see that a lot. But anywho, um, it's hard to beat an aiming method that uses an arrow because you got a single pin sight sitting out there in front of your bow. And if you need it, why not use it? Now, back to your point about shooting free throws well. I've seen that really good baseball players in general make really good instinctive aimers in general. Now, I also observe, this is observation, in general, there's a good percentage of men that can become good instinctive aimers, but there's hardly any women. Why that is, I don't know. I don't think women see spatial relationships and trajectory paths like we do, but there's exceptions to every rule, and I'm going to give you those exceptions. So I got a buddy named Paul. 
Paul's an engineer. He's a real analytical guy. Probably has the most technically correct shot execution of us all. He was a pitcher and a shortstop and a college ball player. Cannot instinctively aim to save. He couldn't hit the inside of the, the barn door from the inside, right? The relationship between what he's looking at and where his arm is pointing, do not calculate in his brain. He has to use the arrow. Now, there's an exception to the rule, right, of that athleticism of throwing a baseball or shooting a free throw. He breaks the norm. My daughter-in-law is was a four-year starter, Division One softball player at Purdue University, all Big Ten Conference, a stud of an athlete, seen trajectory paths coming back and forth from her all of her life, right? That lady can instinctive aim. She's a heck of an instinctive shooter, instinctive aimer. The other, I know another gal never played sports. I think she played soccer once as a kid. This is Tracy's wife. Heavy set lady, that lady can shoot. Put her on a 3D range, she's going to drop him in there looking at a spot. She breaks the norm for women and a non athletic woman. But on the other side, we got a good baseball player, makes no connection. I just don't know what it is. I'm not smart enough to figure it out why some folks can do it and some folks can't. The folks that can't do it think it's absolutely hogwash. There's no way anybody can be good. But trust me, there are a lot of people that are outstanding shots at unknown varying ranges as an instinctive aimer. Their brain sees that sight picture, puts it together subconsciously, and they can drop them in there. As far as ultimate accuracy, yeah, you're not going to beat the same, put the same talent with a known range and a gap. That's hard to beat. It's hard to beat, or a point of aim of some kind. Now, back to one other thing, and then I'll get to the next question is, I'm a split-finger shooter. My gap at 20 yards, I measured it because I started putting the arrow, finding out where the arrow points at the bullseye, is 36 inches. My arrow has no relation to the bullseye. What, it's three feet below the target. It means nothing. I simply look at that spot. I'm completely unaware of my arrow. And dang, if I can't hit about a four-inch circle pretty much every time. So there's some mystery to it too, Dylan. <laughs> it really is. See, that just, that right there, I don't know, man. Um, when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to shoot a compound. Like, <laughs> when I hear that, I'm thinking, like, I don't know, you know. Um, and I would say, no, no, no. We'll find an aiming method that works for you, man. We'll teach you, you know, we'll put your talent in a repeatable process and find an aiming method that works for you, and it's going to be lights out. You ever seen Aaron Schneider shoot? I, man, that's what I was going to say. He's a gap shooter. He he's a good range estimator, and he's a gap shooter. And I don't know anybody can beat him. That's exactly. I'd love to see the guy run the target rule for a while because I think he'd own it. That's exactly what I was going to say, and he's the perfect example. And, and you know, going back to what I said about what I appreciated about you about somebody who just wants to, you know, to to specialize in something. You know, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, it was with Schneider, and we talked about arrow setups. And dude is anal retentive about his arrows. And, he's uh, that way about everything. Yeah. He's well that, a student of the sport. And that's what I appreciate about him because, you know, when he, when he, and, and really, uh, you know, Aaron, Aaron did more for traditional archery than, than I, you know, I don't want to say anyone, but watching such a, a public transition to traditional archery, watching the struggles, watching the, yeah. the, 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 the overcoming, watching the outcome. Um, it's, it's awesome, man. 
but but he's yep. taken every part of of shooting a traditional bow and and, and broken it down so far and Tom, yep. I'll tell you, um, that was my original kind of draw to traditional archery because I got so I got so anal retentive about everything on my compound that it got to where I didn't enjoy it anymore. You know, it, I, I look at it as like there's two two ways that we, uh, a compound shooter looks at it, and two ways a traditional shooter. Compound shooter, you hit the bullseye, okay, neutral. Two emotions, neutral. You expected to. You miss a little bit, aggravation. Traditional shooter, he misses a little bit. Oh, okay, I got to work on that a little bit. Pretty neutral, honestly. Hits the bullseye. Oh, that feels awesome. Yeah. So we got we got neutral and feels awesome, or neutral and aggravated. Yeah. <laughs> you know well, what? That's part of the appeal to shooting a traditional bow. And let me tell you, I don't care how somebody enjoys a traditional bow. It's such a joy. It can be as simple as you want it to be, and it can add a ton of complexity if you want to really get good especially at long range that's exactly what i was gonna say is i almost got mad at at shooting a recurve because that's i switched to shooting a recurve because i'm like man it's just so much simpler go out and shoot and and now that i've started down this rabbit hole i find myself every night watching videos you know about arrow tuning and about different aiming methods and then I found myself for a week digesting information on fixed crawl and I find myself and I'm like good lord it's not simple at all you know uh but that's why I switched because I thought it was simple and now I'm realizing it's not well when I started in it really was I shot wood arrows for 20 years and I'd shoot these arrows and I didn't know a dang thing I didn't know any not a percent of what I know now and it was the joy and simplicity of the sport. We found a wood arrow that looked like it flew perfect, and we shot it, right? And I stuck a 125-grain bear razor head or single bevel grizzly on the front of that and killed a bunch of elk. And we didn't know anything about FOC. We didn't know anything about arrow weight and Ashby studies. We just went and hunted and took a lot of game with that stuff, <laughs> right? And we didn't know any. It was all instinctive shooting you know, it was just a simple joy of the sport. Now, I'm kind of a geek about it. I'm fairly analytical personality type. I enjoy learning this stuff. I've learned, I've really enjoyed the, of learning this whole in-depth process of shooting a bow super well. And I've added this stuff to my shooting. And my goodness, it's transformational. Now I can really shoot well at quite good distance reliably in, and under pressure. That's a pretty cool thing to learn too. How far would you say? it can be say... anything... Sorry. Anybody wants to do? How Go far? Ahead, ben. How far would you say um, you can be effective with a recurve? Not not you personally, but but somebody. Potentially, yeah. Uh, potentially, you get a guy like Aaron. I believe currently he could be effective at fifty yards under pressure, reliably. See, that's that's another thing that that I feel like a lot of compound guys. That's their that's their their drawback to shooting a, a recurve is, well, what if the deer's at 35? Um, yeah, it's something you got to get over. Yeah. And Aaron had to get over that too. Now, Aaron is an exception at that range. And there's a lot of crusty old guys my age going, well, that's very ridiculous. You know, that man, that's unethical as all get out. Let me tell you my opinion. If you've got a relaxed animal and you can dump it in there every freaking time, that's ethical in my mind. Yeah. If you're if you're shooting with a hope and a prayer, that is just terrible ethics. 
I won't pull a string back unless I pretty much know I can dump it right in there. I just won't pull it back. And I think that's the ethic everybody should have. But yeah, every new recurve shooter has to get over. And Aaron had that that first year. I don't know if you talked to him about this. It's like, damn, if I had my compound, that thing was toast. And it didn't get in my wheelhouse and I had to let it walk and that's aggravating. He doesn't give it a second thought now. The thought now is I had to get a little sneakier. I had to get a little luckier. Damn, I'll get the next one. Well, and, and that's just, another thing. You just loot, you loot, you do lose that. And, and, you know, if a guy's carrying a rifle and a bow, he's rifle hunting. Yeah. Well, that's another thing. I'm sorry. Thing that's rifle hunting. And that's fine. I got nothing against a guy carrying a rifle and a bow. But a bow hunter is going to carry a bow. And if it happens, it's going to happen. If not, he can accept. If you've got to kill something, you're probably not going to shoot a recurve or a longbow if you have to kill something. But let me tell you, the good guys, they're doing it. They're killing. They're taking their animals consistently reliably you know i i told myself finally um you know with a compound you're always focused on being a better shot you're always focused on on how far can i effectively shoot how small of a target can i hit um you know i I recently kind of had this kind of had this conversation with john dudley and uh and i'm like well you want to be a better shot but when i switched to a recurve my whole mindset switched to let's be a better hunter. Let's be a better woodsman. Let's be a better sportsman. Uh, let's learn how mm-hmm. to stalk more effectively. Let's learn how to get our tree stands closer to, to the trail, you know. Um, and so your whole yeah, mindset and you, has And it to gives switch. you more time in the woods. It gives you more time doing what you love to do. Right. If you walk out there with a rifle and, and you can get her done the first day or two, I mean, that's great if you need to put meat in the freezer. It really is. And it's, it's really a phenomenal thing. But I like spending a lot of time out there anyway. Yeah. So if I need to study the animals and watch their patterns for a day or two, that's part of the fun for me. Um, you know, so I can plan getting right in their wheelhouse, getting in that travel pattern, whatever I need to do, whether it's a spot and stock or a ambush or a call in or whatever. It's just put a bunch of tools in your tool belt, learn them all. Now, before we move on, I do need to give yep. another quick thank you to our friends over at Easton. You were telling me about a, an arrow that that you just got in from Easton that you absolutely love, and it was the uh, the Legacy, correct? Yeah, we just got our inventory in those Easton Legacies. Uh, absolutely gorgeous arrow. They come with a really nice graphic and a real crown dip, a real lacquered crown dip. And uh, they're, they're making that arrow in a 350 all the way to a 700 deflection, 350, 400, 500, 600, 700, and they're coming at 34 inches. So that's a fantastic thing. When I think Black Eagle is the only other one really kind of doing that in a traditional arrow, because we got a lot of tall folks out there, and a lot of these arrows in the market are coming out at thirty and a half or thirty-one and a half inches. And there's there's a few exceptions, and I'm not going to name them, but Easton just came out with an absolute knockout of a wood grain with a crown dip arrow. They they we order them with they come pre-fletched uh, the four-inch fletching or as shafts with the crown dip. And you can get them in, in all different ways like that. Uh, the 400s were 9.2 grains per inch. We didn't weigh the other ones, but they're going to you know, go up or down from that, obviously, as you get to a lighter spine or, or that you go to a 350, it's going to be closer to 10 grains an inch. But uh, anyway, absolutely knockout gorgeous traditional arrow. Now, you mentioned, and I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. When you have a a dip or you have, you know, the wood grain on an arrow and you go to strip an old wrap or strip an old feather. Yep. How in the world do you keep from chipping 
the wood grain paint on that arrow or the 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 dip on that arrow <laughs> unless you got a lot of time on your hands and real good with a razor blade you are not we were just talking about today when we go to refletchies i wonder if lacquer is going to cut that or like acetone is going to cut that real good so you have just, to just kind of be accepting of the fact that that is never going to look the same um yeah pretty much unless you crown dip it yourself again which is <laughs> completely doable a little dip tube and uh, some white lacquer and you just make your mark and you dip it see that that bugs me man um because i had a i had a i had an arrow and i think it's like the the i think it's the axis traditional so it's yep. painted with the wood grain and uh and i went to pull off some old wraps and i'm like crap the wood grain is is flaking off and so i'm like well now i have to wrap it again um and so i ended up having you know put another wrap on but uh you know, yeah. I guess that's the yeah. cheap method. But um, so, anyways, go check out Easton's entire lineup of all their arrows over at EastonArchery.com. They make some f- fantastic arrows for your compound or your recurve. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of just beautiful wood grain arrows for your for your recurve. Like Tom mentioned, that Legacy arrow is just a gorgeous arrow. So go check out Easton's entire lineup. Uh, because I shoot them out of my recurve and my compound, and I'm shooting the new Axis 4mm out of my compound, and just a fantastic arrow there. So go check out. And all American made. And, and all American made. And all American made. You are absolutely correct. Um, now I do have a question for you. What, as somebody who is brand new to shooting a bow, never shot a bow before in their life, um, uh-huh. is there a method that you prefer over? others to teach and then if there's somebody who has been a compound shooter for all of their life and they're switching is there a method that you prefer to teach yeah pretty much the same one um newer shooters i'm gonna have them three under we're gonna get that arrow up in line with their eye more i'm gonna have them in a fairly high anchor point so that gap isn't humongous and then we're gonna teach them all about a holding position all all about how to align their skeletal structure in a way that we've got alignment from the rear shoulder to the front shoulder to the front hand so that you get skeletal support and you get a good beam sitting there on their skeletal structure with your bow arm. And then we're going to teach them what back tension is all about. We're going to find the anchor point and you know, at a really super simple level, we're going to find an anchor and we're going to wheel that arrow in a rotational fashion so that we engage our back muscles until so that scapula, your shoulder blade retracts and there's a stopping point to that retraction of your shoulder blade. And that spot right there creates a consistent draw length. So you anchor and you rotate that elbow around the corner and bam, it hits a wall there, like a wall with a compound. There's a much more technical way to talk about this and do it, but for just simple purposes. When we shoot the arrow, we're going to develop an aim. We're going to develop a gap or we're going to find out where that aim goes eventually. But first of all, we're going to learn to execute the shot kind of consistently. So we're going to hit that wall. And we do a little drill with them. We visualize a golf ball over their shoulder. We're going to develop a hooked hand, and we're going to snag that golf ball with with our hooked fingers. So we're going to aim, and we're going to do a rapid speed motion. We do it with a cord or a stretch band first, and we just snag that ball. We're just going to we're just going to uh, move right through that string, and we're not going to think about releasing. And we're going to snag that ball. That visualization that's over our shoulder, and that crazy dumb drill. What it does is it gives you, it keeps, because that ball is kind of behind you and over your shoulder, it's going to kind of by accident and trick you into using back muscles because we have correct direction of tension. We're not pulling the, uh, straight away from where the arrow is pointing. 
we're using back muscles, our direction of tension comes behind our back. We're pushing the back of our arm behind our back, and we're going to perceive that we want that hand going right along the face to a landing spot over the shoulder. And we're for a, for an hour or a day or a week, we're going to do that follow through. We're going to force the follow through in a rapid speed motion without thinking of releasing the arrow. And what that's going to do is it's going to develop in that brain. That brain is going to figure out how to send the relaxation of the flexors for a fraction of a second of relaxation. And that subconscious release is just going to happen. The brain just figures it out. We're not opening our fingers. We're actually going to snag that ball with, with cooked fingers. The brain will send that signal. The f- string will just blow through it subconsciously, and the string fingers will spring back into place, and you're going to snag that golf ball. That's kind of an entry-level drill. That whole process of adding string tension is going to be aimed at that same spot there when we turn that force follow-through into a follow-through that's a natural result of tension in that direction after the string blows through your fingers. But at first, we're just going to trick them into a good back tension release, which is going to trick them into seeing an aim and then knowing they have another job to do, which is that force follow-through. And then they're going to learn to separate those jobs, and then their brain is also going to learn to get rid of that string without a now moment, without opening your fingers. And we'll turn a conscious release into a subconscious release. And then that gets settled down and settled down and settled down until it's a very precise, subtle increase in tension to your follow through. So that's kind of an entry level lesson in a snapshot right there. Um, Then once we get them producing that shot fairly consistency, now we start playing on, okay, put that tip about a foot below the target and see where it hits. So shoot four or five arrows. Bam. Okay, we're still sitting about four inches high. So let's put that thing 10 inches below the target now. And in a first day, especially at 10 yards, we can get them on a blue face right away. That would take some time just pointing and looking or figuring out on your own, trust me. So we just started at some level of accuracy with a rough first lesson. If it's a compound guy, I said, what I'm going to say is treat that recurve bow just like your compound bow. Develop a holding position, develop an aim, and you know that trigger pressure you're using through back tension to get to a surprise break. We're going to do the same dang thing with a recurve. We're going to build that holding position. You're teed out just like with your compound. You're going to see a good aim. You're just going to look at it. You're going to add tension. We want that tension to land to a fall through over your shoulder. That guy's going to have bow handling skills right away. Of course, with a beginner, we're going to be showing them grip, where to hook string, where to place the string in the fingers, you know, how to form that, that hook as far as there's lots of nuances to that. All the basics. We're going to get them into alignment. We're going to show them how to draw the bow out of their back instead of their shoulder. You know, there's a lot of things that goes into an introductory lesson. A lot of stuff that guys my age or most guys around the country obviously don't have instruction. We just taught ourselves to shoot, honestly. I used to watch uh, G Fred stuff to learn to shoot. And speaking of ambassadors of sport, I think G Fred Asbell was probably one of the biggest, not the biggest, ambassador for our sport. Then Fred Eichler came along, and he's been a tremendous ambassador for the sport of traditional archery. And now I think Aaron Snyder has that. You know, I uh, I recently was with my friend um, Harv Ebers, which we'll be with next week for shot execution. And, uh, and what a fine guy that guy is! And he what said, a, "What a fine person he is." I like, I love Harv. And he said, <laughs> "Hey, he said, you tell Mister Fred Asbell." 
I got more knowledge of shooting a recurve in my pinky than he's ever had in his lifetime. <laughs> that would be a good razz that those old boys would give each other, isn't it? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm probably not going to tell him that, but, uh, <laughs> but you can. And I wouldn't either. No, I wouldn't either. No way. He's done a lot for our sport. I don't prescribe to that shooting method. I teach a wholly different method, but that man has done more for our sport than probably anybody. Now, I do have one more question for you. D does your aiming method or does your, you know, shooting a fixed crawl, three fingers under, split fingers, does that change your shot execution whatsoever? Not whatsoever. So no matter whether I try a fixed crawl, three finger under gap shooting, you know, mm -hmm. split finger instinctive, the shot execution is the exact same no matter what. It's the exact same. We want to put your talent in a repeatable process. And we want that repeatable process to involve the best biomechanics that the best moderns in archery can prescribe for us as far as shooting an arrow accurately and under control, both mental management and physical management of that shot. And there's a giant mental management aspect to it because the software runs the hardware. And there's lots of things that involve target panic that I haven't even talked about. That's, uh, <clears throat> you know, to get Joel Turner on sometime to talk. I could too, but I'll leave it to Joel because he's kind of, a guy that I highly respect and learned a lot from about mental control and that kind of thing. But I could go into it, but that's a whole daily week and it's a big rabbit hole to jump down. It takes a while. <laughs> <laughs> now I do. My question is, is there any, is there any method, aiming method, shooting method that you would say steer clear of? I would say that, Instinctive aiming is just not going to work out for a whole lot of folks. I would say everybody should try it. Try it at 10 yards. See if those my arrows can migrate into what you're looking at. Give it a little bit of time. If you can do that, then get good at 10. And then get good at 15 and stay there. And then get good at 20 and then start mixing it up. But I'd say that's the only one that not everybody can get good at. I think everybody can get good at all the various aiming methods. There's nuance to all of them. When we go to, you know, when we go to a uh, holding position with a side of face anchor, that's why you see us traditional guys with a canted bow. That arrow is on the right side of your eye with a good holding position. If that elbow is behind the string, unless you have exceptionally long form, that string is going to be on the right side of your eye. We don't have a string blur anymore. Where our eye is not looking straight down the arrow. That arrow's pitched right to left a little bit for a right-handed shooter. And we're going to have to take the head and the bow in a tip or a cant or a tilt until that arrow comes right under your eye. Now you have alignment of your eye to the arrow to the bullseye. That's why you see canted shooters in traditional archery. Um, Olympic archers are under the chin, so they do have a string blur. That string is coming right up there, and they use a sight pin. But um, if you were under the chin, your launch angle is going to be so high, you'd be pointing at the floor to hit the bullseye at 20 yards. Um, I like high anchors, three under. It makes everything easier for a new archer. If they want to learn to shoot at longer ranges, and we can go split finger, and we can add 15, 10, 15 yards to your point on, we can go to a low anchor, and we can add more range to that as far as what you can use your arrow for. But I would say three under, fairly high anchor, a cheekbone anchor, maybe nestle that, that anchor right under on the bottom side of your cheekbone or maybe even on the side or to the um, top of it, 
like Aaron's got a pretty high anchor like that. Um, you know, it's going to work best for newer archers for sure. Now I will say this: it is my it is my new official goal to make it to your shop, um, so you can help make me a better recurve shooter. I'd love to share some of the stuff I've learned with you. You bet. It is my goal, and uh, you know, hopefully one day. Hopefully one day I can come out there and we can shoot and uh, we can put this out, um, you know, for for the world to see. And, uh, you know, because that's my, you know, my goal is in this is to help somebody see um, you can do it. You know, it, it's doable. Oh, um, it's way doable. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing I've one thing I've fallen in love with about shooting a recurve and, you know, maybe you've experienced this, too, is. I, you know, I was recently in, in South Texas um, with um, uh, one of the guys from Bear Archery and, and two of my buddies. And and the two of my buddies had never shot a recurve before. And uh, and I took my recurve down there, and, you know, I was just shooting. like, well, let me try it. And, uh, and so they started shooting it, and by the end of the week, both of them had ordered a recurve. It's yeah, just so much fun. It's so much fun. Whether <laughs> yeah. you and, and I made a post today, and I actually tagged you in it. Um, I tagged you in it, and I, you know, I just said, "How come I suck so much at this, but I can't put it down?" You know, how come? <laughs> how come this is such a struggle, but I can't put it down? And and you, you've taught me why in this episode. So I'm glad I tagged you in it because you gave me the answer. Is because it is those times where when you hit the bullseye, money, you're just like, oh yes. And then, yeah. you, and then you want. I swear that. we get endorphins or something, man. When you make yeah. that great shot, and then you want that over and over again, and so it takes you three more shots to get it, and you're just like, oh yes, you know, and uh, and so yeah, that's you answered my question because it's it's the fact that we do struggle with it that makes the shots where we hit it just so much better, yeah. you know. If you develop this skill set, you've developed a heck of a skill set to shoot well with a recurve. I mean, it's a skill set. And and it can be in different styles. We've talked about our friend Chris Perino. I would never try to kill. He's a killer. He's got more of it. Gets into anchor and it's gone. He pulls right through the shot, instinctive aimer. He shoots exceptionally well. I'd never try to change a guy like that. If it ain't broke, I ain't trying to fix it with a style I teach. You know what I love about Chris Perino, too? is he doesn't care. He's just like, I'll be like, well, uh, how do you shoot, man? He's like, I pull back and shoot, and it works. And I'm like... He's, he's great at it. And I'm like, well, cool. Why like, would you change that? <laughs> and I'm like, well, hey, man, can you help me with my arrow setup? He's like, man, I found an arrow that works for me, and I shoot it. And uh, I'm like, yeah. okay. <laughs> you know, he just... Yeah. He has that simple mindset of, I found what works for me, and I'm not going to change it. And I and I would never try to change that. We had... Chris was in the shop one time. We talked about shooting styles. Like, man, would, there's no way I'm going to try to change that. No way. If he runs into a target panning problem, I've got some tools for him. But, man, he's a great shooter and a killer. So, my goodness, if it ain't broke, I sure ain't going to try to fix it. Yeah, that is, uh, that's, that's what I love about him, too. And, uh, you know, when I first was introduced to Chris, you'll find this funny. I was introduced to him, uh, by my friends over at Selway and they said uh they said yeah you'll have to talk to this guy man he uh he kills more animals with a recurve than anybody I know other than the last name Snyder <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and that's the way I used to shoot I just could never be as reliably good as Chris I had to learn more about it I had to uh, get into a a process that I could put my body into that 
the high level people put out to ever get good. I got good, but then the target panic issues and jumped on my back and I shot quite poorly for quite some time until I learned the stuff I've learned from target archery. I just don't have that level of talent. I would love to shoot more like that. It just doesn't reliably work for me. I'm shooting with hope instead of shooting with confidence. Yeah. Chris Perino shoots with confidence. He knows exactly what he's doing. Speaking His talent is in a process. It is in a process. And he repeats it time after time. Speaking of Selway, um, you guys great ha- bunch of folks. Love guys, the Kohlhoffers. You guys have an awesome RMS gear branded uh, Selway quiver that you saw on your website. So yeah. you guys know I rave about Selway all the time. It is hands down, in my opinion, the best quiver you could put on a recurve. So go check out um, at rmsgear.com. Go check out their quivers and their Selway quiver uh, with that RMS gear branded um, on the hood of that quiver. Just a, a gorgeous quiver. Um, before we go, so Tom, this is the uh, one of Bear Archery's podcasts. You know Fred Bear was big on his field notes. What's one thing that you've learned over the years uh, in the field that I can just take, you know, a quick, simple little tip that I can take and put in my back pocket and uh, make myself a better sportsman with? Oh, boy. There's a whole bunch of skill sets that have to come together to become a good hunter, and it's hard to nail one down. You talking about elk hunting? Anything. Talking about deer hunting? Any tip you want to give. Oh, buddy. Um, I would say watch more. Watch more. Um, man, if you can if you can spare a day to just get on the glass, <laughs> your hunting experience is pretty so enriched. If you can watch the patterns in these animals, if you can watch a feeding bedding pattern, if you can watch what little drainage they like to trickle up and down at different parts of the day and pattern those animals. I would say do a little more watching um, and then make a plan for that hunt. Your percentages are going to go way up. Um, I've got a kid who spends uh, a bunch of time. If we're talking elk hunting, man, he'll drive an hour and a half. He'll Jeep an hour and he'll hike an hour. And he'll get there in the evening and set up his spotting scope and he'll watch those elk and what they're doing in the evening until dark. He'll get in his little tent he'll sleep he'll get up right before before the first trickle of light and be on that tripod he'll watch him till nine o'clock in the morning and then he'll walk out an hour and then he'll jeep out an hour and then he'll drive home an hour and a half and but buddy does he give some great opening day opportunities with that work he's putting in but he'll do the same thing he'll sacrifice a half a day or a day in the middle of the season to watch and i would say watch more well and that goes back to that goes back to that mentality of being a, a a traditional bow hunter is you want to make yourself a better hunter, not just a better shot. Um, you can, you know, cause with a recurve, you get within 70 yards, your hunt's just beginning. You get within 70 yards with a compound, you're letting one fly and you're packing out your meat. Um, yep. so, so it all, it all goes back to that mindset switch of, I want to be a better hunter rather than just a better shot. Uh, but speaking of glass, my last shout out, of the episode uh, goes to my friends Koa Optics. Um, I don't know, maybe four years back, I was looking for a new spotter, and uh, and I called some of my friends uh, over at SNS Archery, and I just asked them, you know, what's what's in your opinion, what's the best spotter to buy? And they sold all of them, uh, so so they had no reason to lie to me, and they said I would go with Koa. And, uh, and so I ordered myself a Koa spotting scope, just fell in love with the glass, the quality of the glass, um, 
and, and I recently switched all of my binoculars and everything over to Koa Optics. Uh, they are incredible Japanese-made glass. So go check out Koa Optics. Um, now, real quick before I let you go, this is the Hunting 101 podcast. I'm a huge fan of eating wild game. I'm a huge advocate of eating wild game. Stumbled upon a brand called Rebel 6 Seasonings, and they uh, they make different seasonings for every different kind of wild game. So you can order yourself you know, venison seasoning and, and, and bear seasoning and, and whatever else. And I'm a huge advocate of eating wild game. So do you have one uh, specific way that you like to eat wild game? Maybe your favorite wild game meal, uh, a favorite way you like to prepare it. You know, one one backcountry over an open fire meal that stuck out to you. Um, maybe a favorite a favorite you know type of wild game. Whatever it is. Um, what what's your what's your take on cooking one on one? Mine. Oh boy. I think my most memorable meal ever was on a moose hunt in Alaska. My buddy took a really nice bull moose and we'd been out there quite a while using up our mountain house meals and eating blueberries that were everywhere and catching some grayling that were supplemented us. We took that moose and he had a little cayenne pepper, which today I put on all my steaks. A little sprinkle of cayenne pepper, some seasoning salt and we took a little grill with us that we just get the cold bed and stuck a grill on some rocks that propped it up. And I got to tell you, that was that and grayling was the finest meal I've ever had. Uh, Kings and Queens and heads of state has never had a meal so fine. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? But I still like to grill a good old elk or deer moose steak that same exact way. Uh, yeah. On the grill, a little cayenne pepper and seasoning salt. Oh baby. Medium oh, rare. Man. Pink in the middle. <laughs> Steve Ranella said it best. Steve Ranella said it best. If you've had wild game, if you've had poor wild game, it's because it was cooked poorly. And that's the 100% truth, man. Everybody tries yeah. to overcook their wild game. Cook it slow. Yeah. Everybody yeah, tries yeah. to get it well done, and then it's rubbery and chewy. And, and you're absolutely right. Leave it pink in the middle and just enjoy it for what it is. Don't don't yeah, Don't try to make it taste like something that's not. You know, I can understand. See, my wife, my wife is a yuppie, and uh, <laughs> and I can say that because I think she's asleep and she's not going to hear me, and she never listens to my podcast. So, uh, she's yeah. a yuppie. But one thing I've learned about my wife is I thought it was just a mind thing of not wanting to eat wild game, but she just doesn't like the taste of venison. Like she she's just learned I don't like the taste of venison. Okay. Now, that's okay. Um, because each wild game has its own taste. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't go to the store and, and buy a thing of beef and say, well, it just tastes a little store-bought. No, it tastes like beef. Um, mm-hmm. so venison doesn't have a wild game flavor to it. V- venison tastes like venison, much like duck tastes like duck. You know I mean? It just. Well, yeah. In some old buck in the, in the sagebrush, you can taste a lot different than that whitetail off of a cornfield or hundred percent. 100%. That's what I've learned. I grew up in, in Arkansas and uh, moved to Kansas about seven years ago, and I've learned uh, deer here in Kansas taste a hundred times better uh, than yeah, they do back bet. in Arkansas. Um, well, Tom, man, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I, uh, I promise you, cannot wait to get to Colorado again and uh, and come in there, and you can tell me just how horrible everything I'm doing is. Um <laughs> Well, there's no judgment. If people have seen me shoot 20 years ago, they'd know I have no judgment about shooting. 
The only know, thing I ever think is like, man, I wish I could share this or that with that fella. That's yeah. about the only thing I ever think. And you know, next week, I, I really am excited because next week's episode is with Harve Ebers and uh, and he, I'm actually traveling to Missouri and, and that's exactly what he's going to do is he's going to break down my shot and, uh, and try to teach me proper shot execution. So that podcast will be accompanied by some videos of Harve Ebers um, teaching me uh, proper shot execution. So um, I can't wait for that. can't wait for you guys to be able to see that. Tom, thank you so much for going on, com- coming on. Guys, go check out uh, Tom on his social media platforms. Now, Tom, you have a personal social media, uh, but then you also have uh, your business social media, correct? Yeah, one is RMS Gear, and boys kind of run that. And then I do one that's Tom Clum Sr., because I have a son, Tom, also. We call him Tommy, and a lot of people, when we're together, call me Sr., Old Tom, or Tom, or something like that. So we he's, we don't have a junior, senior, senior officially in our name, but it's Tom underscore Clum underscore SR. That's Instagram. And... Um, and so we've got those two. I think uh, Armas Gear does a Facebook one too, which I'm not sure about. But um, yeah, we have a social media presence mostly on Instagram. Now, yes, and and, and I personally, you guys' Instagram um, is the kind I love because it teaches, and uh, and I can follow along and learn something new every day. So go check out uh, RMS Gear and Tom on Instagram. Tom, thank you so much for coming on. Guys, thank you for listening. I hope you'll have a great week. Make sure if you missed last week's episode with Snyder where we talked about arrow building, head back and listen to that one. And make sure and tune in next week where we're with, where we're with Harv Ebers talking about proper shot execution. Thanks for listening. You guys have a great week. <laughs>